Welcome to Chattachesis. I'm your host, Deacon Matt Hallback, PhD, and I'm also a deacon of the Diocese of Des Moines, Iowa. I'm your host of Chattachesis, a podcast series for clergy that helps them find creative and fresh ways to share the gospel message and promote missionary discipleship. This episode is brought to you by Sadlier's Catechetical Programs, Christ in Us for Kindergarten through 8th Grade, and Cristo en Nosotros, the Spanish bilingual edition for kindergarten through 6th grade. They set the standard for faith formation in today's world. Check them out today at sadlyreligion.com slash CIU and see how their innovative approach is changing the future of catechesis. Today, our show is titled the USCCB 2022 Elections and Updates. So we're going to be talking just a little bit about the upcoming plenary session here in November. Uh, We have a couple of very important positions to fill. The president and vice president of the USCCB will be elected. Uh, And also uh, to talk a little bit about the Uh, some of the standing committees that will be filled with new um, chairmen, including the Evangelization and Catechesis Committee. And then finally, a little bit about uh, a couple of updates on the Eucharistic Revival, as well as the new Institute on the Catechism. So we have a lot to cover. Uh, Why don't we just jump right into it? And let's just start at the top. Literally, we're going to talk about filling the president and vice president roles for the USCCB. Boy, it's election time, and not just for the United States, uh, it's the election time for the United States Catholic bishops. Uh, we don't see attack ads, though, thanks be to God for that, uh, when electing uh, these important uh, bishop positions. So <laughs> that's one thing we can be, we can be grateful for. But uh, if you don't know much about sort of the organization or leadership of the USCCB, then at the top you have a president, there's also a vice president, and how are they elected? Well, they're elected by a simple majority of votes. Um, this year, we have 10 candidates that have been acknowledged. Um, these have been nominated by fellow bishops uh, for this position. I'll read their names shortly. Uh, and who will they be replacing? Well, first of all, as the president currently, we have Jose Gomez, who's the Archbishop of Los Angeles. And uh the new vice president will take over for Archbishop Alan Vigneron of Detroit. Um, the USCCB traditionally uh, elects the vice president, but Archbishop Vigneron is ineligible to run because he would reach the mandatory retirement age for bishops, which is 75 during his term. So we're going to be filling the president and vice president spots uh, this year. So who are the candidates? Who are the people that have been nominated by their peers here in the College of Bishops in the U.S. Well, first we have Archbishop Timothy Brolio, the Archdiocese for the Military Services. We have Bishop Michael Burbage from the Diocese of Arlington, Bishop Frank Caggiano from the Diocese of Bridgeport, Archbishop Paul Coakley from the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City, Archbishop Salvatore Codilion, Archdiocese of San Francisco. We have Archbishop Paul Deetien, Archdiocese of Seattle, Bishop Daniel Flores, the Diocese of Brownsville, Archbishop Gustavus Garcia Siller, Archdiocese of San Antonio, Archbishop William Laurie, Archdiocese of Baltimore, and Bishop Kevin Rhodes, the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, Indiana. Um, so we have an interesting makeup of candidates here. We have uh, folks that um, have been very vocal about hot button issues in our culture, uh, including abortions, um, 
and whether or not to withhold communion from people who are publicly in support of procuring or in any way involved with abortion. Um, so the Eucharist, which has been at, a, at the forefront of USCCB conversation uh, and, and really, unfortunately, at the forefront of uh, are really in the nexus of the U.S. church and politics. We have other bishops that would like to take that that Eucharist out of that nexus and say, you know, let's not um, look at the Eucharist as a way to um, as a as a reward for some and a, and to reserve it as a punishment for others. So it'll be interesting to see which way the church uh, votes here, which way the bishops vote. Um, we want to we want to be faithful to church doctrine. We want to uphold the the truth of the Eucharist. We want to uphold the teachings surrounding the Eucharist, including. Um, we want to make sure we're in a disposition to receive Eucharist, um, and that includes not being, certainly not being in a state of mortal sin, uh, and if we are, to have gone to confession before receiving. But we, we live in a very political climate, and it's, it's nearly impossible for the church to, to remain uh, uh, apart from or separate from. Uh, the political climate. Uh, and in many ways, Pope Francis, um, since 2013, since his election, has been calling the church to to not be fearful of politics, but to have a voice uh, in the political arena um, insofar as that voice is concentrated or focused on the teaching of Catholic faith or morals in that public space. And he's not the first. It's, it's interesting that, that Pope Francis gets kind of seen as this overtly political pope. But if we just look at past popes, and that includes uh, Pope Benedict, St. Pope John Paul II, on backwards, and really I would I would go all the way back to um, Pope Leo at the turn of the 20th century, uh, there's been an increasing involvement uh, politically in the sense of relationships and, and sort of um, overlapping of uh, influence and infrastructure maybe between church and state, but, but not, a, you know, in, in the sense that you have congressmen who want to meet with the Pope and, and the president meets with the Pope and you have bishops and, and local uh, political, um, you know, affiliates and leadership getting together for over certain issues and, and discussing from their particular points of view, you know, what needs to be done. There's always been that. But in terms of teaching, uh, we see more again, starting from the 20th century of a focus on uh, social concerns, Catholic social teaching from Rerum Navarum uh, on, we see this strong focus in Pachmenteras from, from St. Pope John the 23rd, et cetera. Uh, these important foci on uh, the intermingling of, of church and politics insofar as the church is trying to preserve and be a voice for the dignity of the human person in accordance with the revelation of God and the word of scripture and the church's own tradition. So, you know, to say that all of a sudden now we've become political because of Francis, that's not a fair assessment. That's not an accurate assessment. Um, to say that these elections that are, that are upcoming here at the November General Assembly are completely immune from the political climate that's occurring right now is kind of naive uh, because, again, we don't elect these folks in a vacuum. They're not bishops in a vacuum. Their diocese don't exist in vacuums. They were very much the secular and, and the holy or whatever have been 
necessarily intermingled, right? Uh, the weeds and the wheat and so forth. Um, uh, the sheep and the goats. Uh, and the idea is how can we bring about, you know, even in a more compelling and clear way, uh, how can we be partners with God in bringing about his kingdom? And at the center of that kingdom stands the Eucharist. So it'll be really interesting to see again who is elected from among these 10 candidates. It's also interesting to point out we have a number of um, Hispanic candidates here. Um, we have uh, also candidates from around the country, which is a wonderful sort of example of uh, the cross-section or microcosm of the church that we we see different cultures interacting. Uh, we see the church in different locales being represented. So again, I'm excited. I don't know if very many people get excited about this, but <laughs> I'm excited to see who will be elected uh, both for president and vice president this year. I also mentioned at the top of the podcast that during the general session uh, in November, the bishops are also going to vote for new chairman for the six USCCB standing committees. So which committees are those? Well, here they are. The Committee on Canonical Affairs and Church Governance, the Committee on Ecumenical and Interreligious Affairs, Committee on Evangelization and Catechesis, which we'll talk more about, Committee on International Justice and Peace, Committee on the Protection of Children and Young People, and the Committee on Religious Liberty. Uh, the six committee chairman uh, elected will serve for one year as a chairman elect before beginning a three-year term at the conclusion of the bishop's 2023 fall general assembly. So let's hone in on one of these standing committees in particular, the Committee on Evangelization and Catechesis. And one of the reasons we're, we're focusing on it is because that's the committee I have the most uh, knowledge of and the, the best relationship with uh, just because of my role at Sadler and um, and just the wonderful generosity and, and collaborative spirit of everyone on the, on the Evangelization and Catechesis Committee, including their subcommittee uh, on conformity to the catechism. So uh, Evangelization and Catechesis is that parent committee, the subcommittee on conformity. Uh, really what, what, what they do is in their title. Uh, so they, they look at, um, they, they help to guide uh, publishers and dioceses who are now beginning to publish their own catechetical curricula begin to guide them so that what is being published is a uh, complete and authentic expression of the church's teaching and and made hopefully age appropriate uh, you know for different grades and, and levels of aptitude etc um, so it's the evangelization catechesis committee uh, we had a chance, uh, you might have seen it um, here with Sadler for our webinar last year. I was able to co-host with uh, Bishop Andrew Cousins, who is in Crookston, Minnesota. He's the current uh, chair for the Evangelization and Catechesis Committee. Um, check out that webinar if you haven't seen it. You can go to Sadler. Um, it's free. It's great. Uh, Bishop did a wonderful job. Uh, it's actually <laughs> three sessions uh, and it's all about Eucharist and Eucharistic revival and saints and Eucharistic devotion and accompaniment and all these other little themes that connect with sort of resurrecting or maybe even growing for the first time a real Eucharistic culture. So who is um, perhaps going to replace uh, Bishop Cousins? Well, we have a couple of candidates here. We have Archbishop Charles Thompson is in the Archdiocese of Indianapolis, and I got to serve with him on the National Advisory Council. 
what that group is, is a, again, another wonderful microcosm of the church, the number of laity from around the country, uh, bishops, priests. Uh, I was the lone deacon over the last few years. Um, but the idea is we, we represent these different regions of the country and we look at uh, the issues of the day, so to speak, and address what the uh, USCCB Administrative Committee asks us to take a look at. So we're an advisory council and um, with, a, with a bit of a, a, a broad mandate there, but um, it was a wonderful experience, that's for sure. And just the collaboration again with kind of this cross section of the church was just um, very enriching, rewarding for me. And, uh, and we did do, I mean, it sounds biased, but we did do a lot of good work for, <laughs> for the OSCCB and in particular for these general sessions that we're talking about in this podcast. So uh, Archbishop Thompson and then Bishop William Byrne from the Diocese of Springfield in Massachusetts. Uh, those are our two candidates for evangelization and catechesis chairman. Both will be and do an excellent job. Um, what else is going on? What, what else does the evangelization and catechesis committee do? Well, let's take a look at that. And so, uh, if you just do a quick visit to the USCCB website and you go to evangelization and catechesis, one of the things you'll see is their mission and you see their mandate. Uh, when we were not, we're not going to get into all the language of that, but you can, you can guess that their mandate and mission include uh, <clears throat> helping bishops um, in their local dioceses, supporting them in their own apostolic mission to evangelize uh, and to catechize. So one of the things I did want to draw attention to, however, is the different sort of um, initiatives that the Evangelization and Catechesis Committee is responsible for. Uh, two of those uh, we'll go into depth with is the Eucharistic Revival and the new Institute on the Catechism, which I'll talk about uh, shortly here. Um, but they also have a hand in Catechetical Sunday and creating resources for that and picking the theme for that, uh, developing prayers uh, for it, and also for the English version of the, uh, the directory for catechesis. So it, uh, the original uh, typically is um, the, uh, what we would call the Editio Typica is typically in Latin. Uh, and then each country has a translation that is um, authorized by the local Episcopal conference. So you can always pick up the new directory for catechesis there at the USCCB website. You can also find it on Amazon. And you can also see a wonderful little digest of it if you go to Amazon and type in my name. Because <laughs> I, I authored a little digest of it uh, in 2021, I believe, or maybe it was late 2020. I can't even remember now. Time has just become sort of nebulous uh, really since COVID. And even though we're kind of emerging out of the emergent state of COVID, um, we still it's just been kind of um, time warping for me but anyway check that out as well it's a great summary of the uh, little highlights and summaries of the uh, new directory for catechesis so do check that out so let's get into a couple of the specific um, initiatives that the evangelization and catechesis committee are in um, one of those being the eucharistic revival um, if 
if we go and we'll, we'll go ahead and link to the Eucharistic Revival website. So we'll make sure you have that. You can see that when you go to click on this podcast, we'll also have the link to the Institute on the Catechism. So if you're like, uh, don't worry, you'll, you can check it out yourself. <laughs> so you'll have a chance to see it um, and what it's all about. But there's something I want to mention because I've already done a Chattachesis episode on Eucharistic renewal and revival. In fact, I've done a couple of them. One was with Bishop Cousins. Uh, who's at the forefront of uh, leading this, um, you know, Episcopal um, in um, movement of Eucharistic revival. And then I did one with um, the uh, Bishop uh, uh, Schaffenberger in, um, oh my goodness, in the Diocese of Albany. <laughs> and uh, just just a joy to to speak with him and what's going on with the Eucharistic Revival in his diocese. So uh, you can check those Chattachesis episodes out uh, on our website. Uh, you just go to Sadly or do a simple keyword for Chattachesis or just type in podcast. You can also download uh, Chattachesis anywhere you consume podcasts. But back to the Eucharistic Revival, one of the updates I wanted to talk about was this new element, this new dynamic, which is called the Eucharistic Missionary. Uh, this is something that has been in the works for a while. Um, it reminded me when I first heard about it of the Missionaries of Mercy, if you recall from the uh, Jubilee for Mercy in 2016, um, that year of mercy. And by the way, those Missionaries of Mercy, uh, they started out with, I think, a year mandate from Pope Francis to hear confessions and be able to forgive any sin, uh, no longer having to uh, retain sins that are only designated to be absolved by perhaps the local ordinary or even Rome itself. These what we call reserved sins in canon law, like you know assaulting a priest or something uh, that's tip, that's on that reserved list. But to have the ability to the designation or delegation to to forgive all sins uh, anywhere in the world, that mandate was. Uh, expanded indefinitely. So I have a wonderful um, friend in New York as a priest in New York who's from Nigeria, who has just really jumped into this, uh, this ongoing mandate of his to be a missionary of mercy, uh, developed a neat little app uh, with things that resources about mercy and so forth. Um, and he's doing good work. And so these missionaries are trying to be creative with these indefinite mandates and think about like what do I do long term to share the mercy of God. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see kind of what comes out of that as we go forward. But getting back to these new Eucharistic missionaries, what are they? Where do they come from? What are they doing? Well, there's there's a bit on the Eucharistic Revival website, and again we'll link to to it for you. Um, but here's what they say: one, that these missionaries are to offer sincere, prevailing prayer to God, asking Him to accomplish the sovereign work of revival, for it is God's work to do. Another thing that they're supposed to do to model the authentic desire to experience a deep renewal of the personal relationship with Jesus Christ and commit to ongoing formation and growth. <clears throat> and finally, become the hands and feet of Jesus to bring his good news to the mission field of their neighborhood and parish. So a few things. One is pray. Two is um, to be an example or a model or witness of their love for Jesus Christ and commit to growing in that love in terms of formation. And three, 
to somehow take this formation and this life of prayer and put it to the service of others in the name of Christ uh, and doing this in what are rightly called missionary fields in our neighborhoods and parishes. Used to be back in the Second Vatican Council, uh, it's decree on, on evangelization or missionary activity, which is known as agentis in the Editio Typica. Uh, if you talked about evangelization in missionary uh, fields, you're talking about growing new churches or planting new churches in foreign areas among indigenous peoples. So haven't things changed quite a bit? We're not so much talking about that anymore as we're looking at our backyard now as a missionary field and we're not necessarily planting young churches or growing these uh, new churches but what we are doing is looking at how can we resource better the domestic church you know households of faith however you wish to call it how do we support families in their own faith formation how do we do it in an authentic and effective way uh, a compelling way an exciting way and how do we mobilize households to be all of what was just said with regards to the Eucharistic missionary? How do we help them become a people of prayer? Uh, how do we help them uh, build and move on their desire to grow in their relationship to Christ? And how do we help them to share their love for Christ with others in very practical and spiritual ways? All right, so what else can we talk, say about the Eucharistic missionary? We've heard a bit about their mandate, or maybe we shouldn't call it the mandate, but sort of the, the guiding points here. Well, they gave us a timeline also on their website. And this timeline is in development still, and it says that on the website. But here's what we got so far. So during the year of diocesan revival, which is what we're in right now, and this, this year of diocesan revival will continue till June 2023, the missionaries are to commit to increased prayer, fasting, formation, and evangelization. In the following year, so they call it the year of parish revivals. This is from July 2023 to June 2024. Uh, missionaries are called to stretch themselves a little bit spiritually, deepen their commitments in terms of bringing Holy Communion to the homebound. So now we're starting to see a shift to sort of practical apostolic work right now we're, we're bringing we're becoming extraordinary eucharistic ministers in this case and then finally in the year of mission and that is the last year of the revival july 2024 to june 2025 uh, missionaries will be sent forth in a special way to accompany those in need or at the margins with good news of jesus's real presence now these are obviously ten thousand foot kind of mandates but what you know what that will look like and mean and all those little practicalities will we'll eventually bubble to the surface and we'll have a clearer picture of what the missionaries will be up to um, if you want to sign up to be a eucharistic missionary you can do that on the link that we're connecting to this podcast episode so don't worry don't fret and we'll show you how to do it if you feel so inclined so called by god um, which we hope that you feel that way um, just on a personal note or i should say a corporate note maybe uh, but I'm very, uh, I think it's an apropos to mention the, the, our relationship here at Sadler with Franciscan University's Catechetical Institute. Why am I mentioning that? Because we sponsor a track called Eucharistic Renewal. Uh, it is a part of their online formation, uh, Franciscan at Home, their, their online community of formation, which is humongous 
includes a lot of dioceses um, and is also international in scope. Uh, that track will be used as part of the formation for these Eucharistic missionaries. So we're very excited to be able to sponsor that track. We're very happy to be in partnership with Franciscan University uh, and, you know, to, again, support these new Eucharistic missionaries, um, making uh, this wonderful catechesis available to them online. So if you're not already aware of Franciscan at Home, aware of the Catechetical Institute, uh, do check it out. And of course, check out the uh, Eucharistic Renewal track. Okay, uh, the other uh, venture that I wanted to take a look at and I'm typing it into my little bar right now, is the new uh, institute on the catechism. And again, this is uh, sort of spearheaded or led, initiated by the um, Evangelization and Catechesis Parent Committee and supported by the subcommittee on the catechism. So they're having their first, their launch, their first, the launch is in the form of a, of a retreat here in the upcoming month, uh, and it's really close to the dates of the General Assembly. It'll also be held in Baltimore. But what is this Institute on the Catechism? You know, where did it come from? Well, if you read their vision on the website, and I've been in meetings with the uh, leadership, uh, which has explained it a lot in a lot of detail what this is all about. Let me just say that the Institute on the Catechism is a means by which the Lord wants to renew catechesis through the means of evangelization and what we're calling evangelizing catechesis. So just those words alone kind of clue us into uh, what the new directory was bringing forth, which is, and Pope Francis brought forth, which is what is, we need a more charismatic catechesis today, charisma being that gospel message, the core, the distillation of Jesus' message. Uh, we need more of that today. How do we help catechists to be evangelizers? How do we help evangelizers to catechize? How do we deal with the practical realities of, you know, having to catechize folks who are not evangelized? Now, I just did a catechist stream episode on this um, just yet, just the other day. You can check out all of our previous um, episodes for catechist stream, which is a live stream to support catechists, the ministers. Um, we talk about issues of the day in the church, etc. But check out catechiststream.com, catechiststream.com. You can see all of our videos there. You can also go to Sadler's YouTube channel. Uh, you can also go on Sadly Religion's Facebook page, and you'll see links to catechist stream. Uh, but what I said in the, in the latest catechist stream episode regarding um, the, uh, the Institute and evangelizing catechesis is that the biggest problem facing the church today is what I just mentioned, that we're trying to catechize people who have not yet experienced any kind of initial evangelization. Why is that so important? Well, if we go back and take a very strict definition of what catechesis is, and we can lift that definition from Catechesia Tridente from St. Pope John Paul II, or we could go and look at, you know, what does uh, the Second Vatican Council have to say uh, in its document on the bishops, and talking about the role of the bishop as the chief catechist and what catechesis means, uh, or, or even looking at any of the directories, all right, from 1971, 97, or 2020. Uh, what we piece together and what was articulated in such a pithy way all the way back in the 1960s by a wonderful Jesuit uh, catechist and scholar, Alfonso Nebreda, 
who, along with Johannes Hofinger, another Jesuit responsible for the very famous International Study Weeks on Catechesis, which spanned the globe and have spanned several decades since the 60s, where professionals and scholars and religious and laity getting together, talking about the ins and outs of evangelization and catechesis. Well, all that being said, Alfonso Nebreda very succinctly says, look, catechesis is about uh, teaching about the mysteries of the faith, okay? Teaching about the mysteries of the faith. Why is it important then that we be evangelized before we're catechized? Well, if we don't have the faith, it's very difficult to teach in a compelling way about the mysteries of the faith. You follow me? If we don't have the faith, it's hard to teach people in a compelling way about the mysteries of the faith. I mean, the faith is something that's caught initially. It's not taught. It's something that's pre-verbal. It's something that is the spirit that groans within us, as Paul tells us. Uh, it's something that that orientates us uh, to to God, to Christ, because we've had some kind of encounter or encounters with him mediated through whomever. It could be family members, could be clergy, could be parishioners, could be something online, whatever it is. But God comes to us and begins this um, work or journey with us of conversion, right? Our heart begins to change. Our outlook begins to change. Our priorities begin to change. And all this begins before we know how to articulate what we believe, in whom we believe, why we believe, be apologetic, and all these kinds of things. All that stuff comes later. But what should hopefully come first is that core uh, orientation, that, that sort of initial interior commitment to Jesus, which again comes an, a lot of times before we, we know very much about what it is exactly that we believe as Catholics. Now, if we don't have that kind of foundational initial evangelization, that foundational initial faith, when we hear catechesis then, or when we're catechized, at best, what we're hearing is some, some reasonable ideas about God, some perhaps compelling apologetics about God or the church or scripture or whatever. Um, but it's not something that our heart, our being is open to yet, right? Now, your heart, your being, your soul can be open to those things <clears throat> through some of these other channels I just mentioned, through apologetics, through uh, uh, certainly scriptures, through reading uh, the catechism or in our religious education class, you know. It's not that you you cannot be evangelized through catechesis. You absolutely can. But what makes catechesis a little more effective and impactful is when that initial faith is already present. So evangelizing catechesis, long story short, uh, the mission of the um, Institute on the Catechism here is to help publishers, help diocesan leadership, and allow that help to trickle down into parishes and, and homes and, and so forth. Um, to, to help us all find more effective ways, more charismatic ways to engage people catechetically. So I'm super excited to be at this institute. I think it's going to be great. It's built as a retreat. There's going to be plenty of time for prayer, for fellowship. There'll be some presentations on aspects of the faith. Uh, Christian anthropology, which is at the forefront of a lot of issues of the day. How do we, how do we treat these issues as catechists, etc.? So very much looking forward to that. The Institute on the Catechism uh, 
check out the the link that we'll have connected to this podcast. Um, again, excited that the Evangelization and Catechesis Committee is leading this, uh, along with the subcommittee on the catechism. Um, and also, again, the Eucharistic Revival website. Check that link out, uh, which is connected to this podcast. Well, friends, there's a lot going on in the upcoming month in November. We're going to be electing a new leadership for the U.S. Bishops Conference. Uh, we're also seeing some updates on some really important um, ventures, the Eucharistic Revival and the Institute on the Catechism. And uh, it looks like uh, just a lot of um, opportunity and a lot to be hopeful about that's in front of us. So it's a great way to end this podcast on a hopeful note that at that national level, we're seeing some really uh, interesting signs of, of the Holy Spirit moving the church, uh, not only in, in electing new leaders, but moving us in these important directions of of evangelizing catechesis and Eucharistic revival. Well, that's our episode for today. Uh, I want to thank you again for joining me. Uh, this has been another episode of Chattachesis. Uh, before I say I'm your host, Deacon Matt Hallback, and sign off, I definitely want to pray because we, we do that at the end of every, every episode. So without further ado, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we ask you to pray for our bishops, pray for all leaders, uh, clergy and lay alike. Um, may we all be open and docile to your spirit so that you can move us where you will when you will it. Help us to be collaborative, to work for peace, um, and to always uh, receive your gifts, Lord, as gifts, and to be uh, ready to share those gifts with others. And we ask this through Christ, O Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you for being with me. Again, I'm Deacon Matt Hallback, and I'm your host for Chattachesis. I look forward to chatting with you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Chattachesis. Head over to sadlyreligion.com forward slash podcast to hear more. And don't forget to request your sample and trial of Christ in Us and our bilingual edition, Christo and Nosotros, at sadlyreligion.com forward slash CIU.